Today we begin a teaching series through this letter of Paul to the church in Philippi. Um, So the theme for our series is the fellowship of the gospel. And, you know, as we do with the different uh, series that we go through, we like to have a nice kind of a visual, a graphic, you know, that, that goes along with one. Maybe you remember the the visual that we had going through the Gospel of Mark. And um, we would put that on the back screen and we would use it to post on social media and so forth. And then we had, we had one for Acts when we were in Acts a while back. So, so as we were talking about the, um, this, this new series, and I was talking to the graphic team about you know, the fellowship of the gospel, and they always asked me, like, do you have any idea um, graphically what, what, you know, what does that look like? And every time I thought about the fellowship of the gospel, the Lord of the Rings immediately came to my mind. And so if you, if you saw the, um, you know, if you, if you saw the graphic, um, you'll see that it, we use that uh, Lord of the Rings font. So um, our graphics department did a great job. But um, this, this is the theme, though. So um, today, this is the title of the message but this will be the theme as we go through the whole letter to the epistles. We're going to end up always kind of tying things back to the theme uh, of the fellowship of the gospel. And we do that because the gospel is the central message that the life of the church revolves around. So our, all of our lives as God's people, our lives revolve around the gospel the gospel, of course, we're talking about the good news concerning Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and what he will yet do. Paul and the Philippians shared this deep communion in the gospel. And that deep communion is the communion that every believer in every congregation should also share. So, as I said, looking at our graphic and our theme, um, I was influenced, not just because I like the, the artwork with the Lord of the Rings, but, but I was thinking specifically of the, um, the first film or the first book in the series, uh, The Lord of the Rings. You know, it's a trilogy. And the first book or film uh, was titled... The Fellowship of the Ring. The Fellowship of the Ring. Now, if you saw that movie or or, or read that book, uh, you'll know that hobbits, wizards, men, elves, dwarfs were all brought into a deep bond of fellowship around their efforts to destroy the ring. So that, that's why it's called the Fellowship of the Ring, because they, they all come together um, around this, this mission that they are on. And so by the end of the story, those who had perhaps originally just been merely friends or loosely associated, or in some cases, even total strangers, became forever bound in deepest brotherhood because of their experience together. So it was this uh, adventure, this fellowship together with this common cause that like forever bound them. And our experiences together in following and serving Christ will likewise, if we let them, do the same kind of thing for us. They will bind us in the deepest fellowship that can be humanly known. But as I said, if we let them, and and we're going to talk about this today, but, you know, we have to understand that we're, we're in a fellowship and we're not to isolate ourselves. And we're not to think of our, of our Christian life or faith 
only in individualistic terms. If we think of it like that, we're thinking of it uh, incorrectly. We need to think of um, being, being together in this, um, this fellowship with one another. And, and as I said, if we understand this and if we do this the way God intended it, we're going to experience deep fellowship that can't really be known on a human level outside of this. You know, Cheryl and I were talking this morning about uh, just thinking about that, just that word, you know, the fellowship of the gospel and thinking about how uh, all of these amazing, wonderful relationships that we have together as a couple, you know, we're coming, this is our, this year is our, going to be our 40th uh, wedding anniversary and um, I know that's hard to believe. You think, what did you guys get married when you were like five years old or what? You know, because uh, we look so young. Um, well, at least Cheryl looks young. Um, but, you know, over 40 years of life together. And we think of all of the deep, deep relationships that we have with people here in this church. She's literally been connected to her entire life. And I've been connected to the majority of my life now. And, um, and, and beyond, places all around the world. But I, I just think of the, this, this deep thing that we have. It's so beautiful. And that's what God intends. And that is what I'm praying for, that as we go through this time of studying this letter together, that our fellowship in the gospel will grow deeper and deeper. So, so that's, that's what we're aiming for as we walk through this uh, series of studies through Philippians. Now, um, as, as we move on, I want to talk about three things really quickly. I want to give us a little bit of background on the church, not much because we read about it there, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the city of Philippi because it's important to know the background to the letters and even the, the background in regard to uh, sometimes geography, sometimes the, the culture, the customs and things like that, because some of what the writers will write about is connected to things that were happening in that place. For example, Paul is going to talk about citizenship to the Philippians. And the interesting thing is that the Philippians were Roman citizens. Now, unlike most of the other nations that were under Roman dominion, uh, Philippi became a Roman colony. And so that gave uh, people uh, citizenship. And, and so when Paul uses the term citizenship here, writing to the Philippians, they get it. They totally get it because, oh yeah, we, so he says, your, your citizenship is in heaven. They understand like, oh yeah, we know what that uh, citizenship thing is about. So we're going to uh, talk about the city just for a second. And then um, also we want to talk about the occasion of the epistle. Why did Paul write this epistle? So really quickly, first of all, the church, we don't need to say much about that uh, because we learn from our reading that the church was birthed out of a vision that Paul had uh, of a man in Macedonia calling them to come over and help. And now just one thing to note about that, or maybe two things. Um, Macedonia was located in, in Greece, what we know today as Greece. And that would have been uh, in what we know today as Europe. So here's the significance. Up until this point, the gospel had not advanced that far west yet. The gospel had, the farthest west the gospel had gone would have been uh, to the western end of what we know today as Turkey. But now, with this vision of this Macedonian man, the gospel is now going to cross the Aegean Sea and it's going to land on the shores of what like I said, we, back then it wasn't called Europe, but what we know today is Europe. So that, that's when the gospel first came into that region. And um, we saw when they arrived, uh, Paul had had a vision of a man. There, there were no men, um, but they met those women 
And then through the various circumstances, the church was established there. Now, with the city of Philippi, the city was named by Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. And it was named by Philip, but it was made a Roman colony by Caesar Augustus. We are told that the settlers that were planted there by Augustus were mainly Italians, and they were, um, they were military men, a high-ranking military uh, who had been discharged, and now they were um, placed there by Augustus. And there was also there uh, a large portion of Grecian Macedonians. So in its social setup, Philippi was like a little, um, well, as a colony, it would have been like a little Rome. That's what a colony was. A colony was like uh, a place where you just took all of the values and the governmental structure and the culture and the society of Rome, and you just put it in another geographical location. So Philippi was a, um, in a sense, it was a little Rome. The official language of Philippi was Latin. So as far as all of, you know, the government language and so forth was Latin. But the everyday tongue was Greek. Uh, The Jewish population was minimal. And this is how we know that. We know that because there was no synagogue in Philippi. Now, when you follow Paul's earlier missions uh, all throughout Asia Minor, you find that Paul generally goes into a synagogue and that's his first place of connection and that's where he begins his ministry among the Jews in the synagogue. Now, when it comes to Philippi, there is no synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish men in the city to have a synagogue. So evidently, there weren't even 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi. Now, if there wasn't a synagogue, then Jews in the city would look for a place to meet, and oftentimes they would try to meet by a river. And so that's exactly what we find here, that there apparently is no synagogue. Paul goes down to the riverside where they were praying, and it's there that he meets uh, this group of women. No men are mentioned here, and Lydia is the one who comes to faith, and basically the church of Philippi begins in the home of Lydia. Now, that's the beginning of the church of Philippi. Paul is writing this letter many, many uh, years later. He's writing back to them. And remember, his experience in Philippi, as we read, was one of going to jail. Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. So he was in jail in Philippi. He's in prison in Rome at this point. And so this is one of the prison epistles. There are, I think, five of Paul's letters were written from Uh, a Roman prison. So what was the occasion? Well, there was was a deep bond between Paul and the Philippians that remained throughout Paul's entire life after he met them and started the church there. And so he's writing to them because of that bond. And he's writing to them, on the one hand, uh, he's writing to them to thank them because they had taken it upon themselves to support him in his ministry. Now, Paul had just a really wonderful relationship with the Philippian church. Now, that wasn't always the case. All you got to do is read through the New Testament. Paul had strained relationships with the Galatians um, because of false teachers that had influenced them. He had strained relationships with the Corinthians because of, some, to some degree, false teachers, but some of it was just the the mere carnality of the Corinthians, but, but not so with the Philippians. Paul had just this, this wonderful um, family bond with them. And so he's writing this letter to tell them how much he appreciates their ongoing love and support for him in the ministry. And as I said, he's writing it from a prison in Rome, and the letter is taken to Paul by hand um, 
from a man named uh, Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus will appear here in the letter. Paul will refer uh, to him. And the letter is to acknowledge them for the gift that they give, gave through Epaphroditus, and, and also to further instruct and encourage them as a church. So with that, let's read the first seven verses um, of Philippians chapter one. I'll go ahead and read them. And it says this, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. And so, did you see there in verse five, the fellowship of the gospel? So that's what Paul is writing about. He's writing to them because of this fellowship that they have in the gospel. Now, I want to look at a few things just so we have an understanding. Um, let's look at the salutation or the greeting. And um, Paul greets them. He, he greets them along with Timothy. He includes Timothy because Timothy was with Paul and Silas on that original venture. And if we would have picked up reading Acts 16 at the beginning of Acts 16 instead of in verse 6, we would have been introduced to Timothy there, but we're going to come back next time and we're going to take a little bit of a biographical look at Paul and Timothy both before we go on. So we'll save that for the next time. But uh, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. So let's talk about the saints, the bishops, and the deacons. The saints. Now, the word saint means those who are set apart, the set apart ones. That, that is the meaning of the word saint. Um, the word saint, sanctify, and holy, these words are all related to one another. They, they all have the same Greek root. So you know the New Testament was written in Greek originally. So the root word um, is, is found... Um, is, the common root is there in all three of these words, saint, sanctify, and holy. Now, they all speak of separation from impurity and dedication to God. Now, newer translations like the NIV, uh, the NLT, they don't even use the word saint anymore. Uh, they instead will... Um, use God's holy people. Now, the word saint, we probably should talk about it for a moment because uh, through the influence of the institutional church, historically, we can sometimes get the wrong idea about saints. Because from the standpoint of the institutional church, and particularly the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but the Orthodox Church would fall into that as well, you, you have people who are designated as saints, but they're extraordinary Christians, right? They're, they're, uh, they're few and far between. So they're, they're people who lived extraordinarily spiritual lives. And, uh, you know, once they died, uh, somebody suggested that this person should be canonized as a saint. So they spend all of this time and they put together all the research and they find out whether or not this person qualifies to be a saint. And then sure enough, okay, yeah, meets the qualifications. And so now we publicly announce that this person uh, is a saint. And then the rest of us are like, wow, 
man, I'm no saint. You know, <laughs> we, we say that kind of stuff all the time, right? Uh, we say that to excuse our behavior sometimes. Well, what do you expect? You know, I'm not a saint. Well, listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what? You are a saint. That's the point. You see, saint means simply give yourselves a hand. The saints at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Uh, because it means those who are set apart. And, and that's all of us. Anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, you're set apart. You're, you're, you're set apart from your sin. And now you've been set apart for the purposes of God. And so that's who Paul's writing to. Not to extraordinarily... Uh, spiritual, holy people. He's writing to just everybody who has their faith in Jesus. So we are, and I, I think the, I, I like the newer translation. I like God's holy people. That's kind of just really defining what the word saint means. Now it's addressed to the saints and then to the bishops and the deacons. Now, once again, we have these terms that have a religious connotation because of the influence of the institutional church in history, and they come down to us today. So if you think in your mind of a bishop, well, the most well-known bishop is the Bishop of Rome, also known as the Pope. And when you think of the Bishop of Rome, or you might want to think of a bishop in, a, in another context, maybe think of the Anglican church or... Uh, Episcopalian is the American version of the Anglican church. But, you know, so you have bishops there. But, but when you think of a bishop, you, you probably think of somebody who's a, a high-ranking religious official. You probably think of all kinds of pageantry. Uh, you think of their, their flowing robes and their mitered caps and maybe their staff and, and all of that imagery. But, you know, the word bishop comes from a Greek word, episkopos, which is Two Greek words put together, epi means upon, and scopus means to watch or to look over. So the word bishop, it just simply means overseer, means somebody who watches over people. That's the meaning of the word. So once again, some of the newer translations, I think, you know, they're trying to get away from just the, the super religious kind of talk that's developed over many, many centuries. And, and just get back down to what the New Testament actually said to the people who it was originally written to. The New Testament was written in the common language. It's called Koine Greek. It was the most common of uh, the Greek language. It wasn't high classical Greek. It was like the language that everybody spoke. Because God wants everybody to, to get it. So, you know, in, in uh, using sometimes these terms... We are, in a sense, sort of hiding, not intentionally necessarily, but we're just hiding what the, what the actual meaning is of, of some of these terms. So, so it's the, the, the bishops are the overseers, and they are the ones who give spiritual oversight to the church. So let me apply that right here. So here at our local church, um, the bishops, the overseers of the church, are the pastoral staff. So if you want to know um, what a bishop looks like, just, you know, Jordan and Craig, they were up here a few moments ago. One of them had red shoes on. <laughs> and uh, Jordan looked good too, but he didn't have red shoes. But, you know, so the, these guys are the overseers, along with me and the, the rest of the pastoral staff. But, and our, and our job is to give spiritual oversight, to teach the Bible, to pray, to counsel, to evangelize, to have vision for the direction of the church and those kinds of things. That, that's what we do as the overseers of the church. But then Paul includes the deacons and the Greek word is diaconus. And this word is translated, it's, it's translated three times in like, I think the, um, probably the King James for sure, maybe the New King James, maybe the, even the New American Standard, is translated three times deacon. 
Now, deacon is just an anglicized version of diaconus. So sometimes uh, the Bible, uh, uh, sometimes the translators will do that. It's called a transliteration. It's where you just take a Greek word and you anglicize it. And so that's what deacon is. But so the word, this word diaconus appears 30 times in the New Testament. 17 times it's translated servant. And 10 times it's translated minister. And if you think about it, it's really just the noun and the verb. So the servant is the noun. The minister, the minister is the person who is serving. So the meaning of the word diaconus is simply to wait upon. Means to wait upon. Now, the deacons are those who have the practical oversight of the ministry. They give practical assistance. And so in the New Testament, in the local church bodies, wherever they might be situated, this is usually the structure or the form of leadership for the church. It's overseers and servants. It's over, it's, it's uh, more technically bishops and deacons, but it's those who have the spiritual oversight of the church and it's those who take care of the practical things. But, but there's, there's overlap in both of those because Paul, when he writes to Timothy in the third chapter of first Timothy, he speaks about the qualifications for each role. He gives some instruction regarding the roles, uh, but then you see that there's, um, there, there's a place where the, the overseers are going to sometimes be involved in practical things. And then also the, the servants, the deacons are also at times going to be involved in the spiritual things. And so if you were coming to the church and you needed, um, let's just say really, uh, you know, hands-on help, like you were coming and you had uh, something that you want to drop off at the church, but it was really heavy and you needed somebody to help you uh, unload it from your car and carry it in. Now, if you came to me, I'd say, well, I'll pray for you about that. But uh, <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would say, yeah, let me help you. Because that's where there's an overlap. Um, I wouldn't say, oh, no, let's, let's get the deacons over here to do that because, you know, the overseers, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. Um, no, we, there's an overlap in those things. But so, like I already said, the overseers of the church are the pastors. And there are, there are many people in the church that would probably be best identified as, as deacons. And I think probably the first place we could start would be with our board you know, as a church, we have a board that directs the, especially the financial affairs of the church. And those men uh, would be um, deacons for the most part. They're not on the pastoral staff. Sometimes they are. Uh, but most of the time, there, there are men who um, just, you know, been part of the church for many, many years. They live and serve and work in the community and they serve here and so that would be who the deacons are. But it goes beyond just, just the board. You know, when I was pastoring years ago down in uh, North San Diego County in Vista, we had, um, beside our pastoral staff, we had 40 men that we had publicly acknowledged as deacons, brought them up before our church and prayed for them. And we did that so people would have um, facial recognition and know that, oh, these are the people that we talk to if we need to know something about the church or if we need help or whatever. So uh, we've never done anything officially like that here, but you know, we might do that at some point. So this is who the letter is directed to, to the saints and to the overseers and the servants. And it's the fellowship of the gospel that Paul is writing about here. And so that, that's going to be our focus. Now, we want to talk about this, the fellowship of the gospel. And I want to talk about it in two ways. I, first of all, I want to put the emphasis on gospel. And then we're going to come back and put the emphasis on fellowship. So 
let's talk about the gospel because in verse five, as we saw, uh, Paul says, he, in verse four, he says that I'm thanking God uh, in every prayer, making requests for you with joy for your fellowship in the gospel. Now, question, what is the gospel? We talk a lot about the gospel and I've explained the gospel many times, but I don't think we can explain it too often. And so I want us to understand that the gospel means more than a lot of times we think it means. Because I, I find this to be true among Christians. There's a tendency to think that the gospel, that's the information we give to the unbelievers so they can become believers. But then once they become believers, they move on from the gospel to something else, the deeper things of God or whatever it might be. But, but that's an incorrect way to understand it. That's not the way the apostle Paul understood it. Um, although it is that, although it is that initial message to the unbeliever, it's more than that. So Paul's idea of the gospel includes more than just the facts about the death and resurrection of Christ and how that death and resurrection pertains to mankind in general. For Paul, the gospel is not just good news announced to the unconverted. It is also the full scope of what the death and resurrection of Christ means for those who put their faith in Christ. That's why Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, said to them, he, he said, I am anxious, I'm longing, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you. Now, when you first look at that, you think, well, wait. Paul, why are you going to preach the gospel to the church in Rome? Because the church in Rome are already Christians. Don't you preach the gospel to non-Christians? Well, yes, you do. But it doesn't stop there. You see, all of our lives, once we come to faith in Jesus, the gospel is always going to be the thing that we're just digging deeper and deeper and deeper into. You see, because when Paul says to the Christians in Rome, I want to come and preach the gospel to you, what he wants them to understand is that there are deep, deep implications from the gospel that have application to us that are going to be the things that are actually going to take us into maturity in Christ. And so the gospel is about forgiveness of sins. It's about reconciliation with God. It's about the new birth, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, power over sin's dominion, adoption into God's family, placement within the body of Christ, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the call to service, and ultimately to uh, attaining glory, which is what happens when we transition from this life into the next. We see all of those things that we mentioned, the gospel is about all of those things, and all of those things are what the Christian life is about. And so when Paul says the fellowship of the gospel, that's what we're talking about. The full scope of what Jesus did and how that applies to us, not just to bring us to faith, but to carry us on to full maturity. Now, let's emphasize fellowship. The fellowship of the gospel. Now, the word fellowship comes from a Greek word koinonia, and many of you have probably heard that word. And the word is translated a number of different ways. As a matter of fact, in the CSB that Cheryl read our reading from this morning, um, the, the word here, the CSB translates the word fellowship as um, partnership. It, it means that as well. It means communion. It means, uh, you know, having, having a shared thing. So when we talk about the fellowship, we're talking about participation together. Participation together. So three things. Number one, participating together with all God's people in growing into maturity in Christ. Now, if I think there's the notes up there and you see in brackets, the local church. Now, participating with all God's people, we do that, but we do it at a location. We're connected to all God's people all around the world. Every believer in Jesus Christ, wherever they might be today, we're connected to them. But we're not in the same locality as they are. But here we are together. And so it's through the local church that we participate together 
in growing into maturity in Christ. You see, the truth of the matter is I cannot become the person that God wants me to be and has planned for me to be unless I am connected to the rest of the people of God. Now, here's the problem. This is where the culture has radically impacted the church. American culture is built on independence and individuality. Now, here's the problem. Now, of course, individuality when it comes to the the idea of salvation is important that we don't forget that God loves us all individually. So we don't want to lose sight of that, but we can take that beyond where it should go and it can become individualism. So you see, individualism basically says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got my own personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, You know, I don't really like to go to church. I don't really, you know, I I haven't found a church that I like. I don't really care about that. I got my Bible. I listen to the radio. Uh, Maybe I listen to a podcast nowadays. Uh, But you know, what do I need to go to church for? I got it all right here. I got Jesus. I got the Bible. I got my podcast. I got a worship uh, thing on my iPad. I can listen and That's individualism. That's wrong. It can't uh, bring you to maturity in the faith. You see, yes, we're individually saved, and that's important to never forget that, but we're saved to become part of a community. We're saved to be part of a body with other people, and I can never attain the maturity that Christ intends for me to attain unless I am participating, participating together with God's people. And so we have to connect. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this equip course that we've been talking about, because not only is that instructional, but there's a connecting with other people. And so we're looking forward to that. And as a matter of fact, I'm just going to announce this, even though uh, Jordan and Kellen don't know this, but we're going to add some more equips because we already filled up the 200 uh, for the first one. And then people are saying, but you mean I got to wait till June before I can go through it? And one of the board members said, it's going to take us forever to get the whole church through that. And he's right. So we're going to adjust that a little bit. But but that's that's one of the things. But that that's also happens when you come and you participate here, whether it's this morning or sometime during the week, or you get in your community groups. But you see, this is what it is. The fellowship of the gospel, it's participating together. And it's through that that we grow in maturity. I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. You know, this past week, as we had the week of uh, prayer and fasting, and, uh, you know, many were there praying at the different prayer times. I didn't make it out of the mornings or the noons, but I, I made it out every night and I got to sit at different tables and pray with different people. And I got to say, I'm better for it. It was a great week and a great experience just to pray with other brothers and sisters was really wonderful. So the fellowship of the gospel participate together. Secondly, rejoicing together in the life, love, and hope of the gospel. Rejoicing together in the life, love, and hope of the gospel. You know, there's just something. And this is where it's, you know, it's it's beyond human. But there there is the life and the love and the joy of the gospel that's transcendent. It goes beyond any uh, human experience. And when we're together as God's people and there's that atmosphere, it's just, it's an amazing thing. And not just for an hour or two, but it's just as we live our lives in that. It's, it's a taste of heaven on earth. It's the kingdom already come in one sense. And this is what everybody's looking for. See, everybody, even though they don't know it, everybody's looking for the same thing. I'm reading a book right now by a man named uh, James K.A. Smith, and it's called Desiring the Kingdom. And the premise of the whole book is that every human being is desiring the kingdom. They just don't know it. Or they don't know what kingdom they're desiring. But everybody's looking for something. 
When you think of these utopian ideas about societies, what is that? Well, that's a desire for the kingdom without the king. We want the kingdom. We want the benefits and the blessings of the kingdom, but we don't want the king. And, you know, whether, whether it be that or even, as I mentioned this first service, even um, Hitler and the Third Reich, what were they trying to do? They were trying to bring in a kingdom. That's what the Third Reich is. The Third Reign. They're trying to bring in a reign that's going to bring about their vision of a perfect world. So this is what everybody's looking for. Everyone's desiring the kingdom. The problem is they're desiring the wrong kingdom. But there's, there's something deep down inside of each and every human being that tells you that there, there's something that transcends what we can actually get our hands on. But guess what? It's the gospel. It's the fellowship of the gospel. It's the life. And it's the love and it's the hope of the gospel. And I don't know any people who have really embraced the gospel who are now trying to discover some utopian thing that is going to bring them fulfillment. They, they found it. You know, somebody is like C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, what a brilliant, great mind C.S. Lewis had. You know what C.S. Lewis was before he was a Christian? He was a communist. And what, what is communism? It's based on Marxism. What is Marxism? It's utopianism. It's we're going to create a world. We're going to create a perfect world. And C.S. Lewis and many other intellectuals have been into that. And, you know, many of, of you know, people like him, um, they realize at a certain point that, you know, this utopia is never going to come. It's not a reality. And they met Christ and they realized, oh, this is what we're looking for. This is the kingdom that we have been longing for. And C.S. Lewis had that great statement where he said, if you find that there's something deep inside of you that nothing in this world can fulfill, then it must mean that you were created for a different world. And that is the reality. But that world comes to us through the gospel. And so the fellowship of the gospel is that. And then thirdly, partnering together for the advancement of the gospel. And that's really why Paul is writing this letter, because the Philippians had partnered together with him for the advancement of the gospel. They said, basically, man, Paul, we are so thankful that you came and did what you did, that you preached the gospel, that we came to faith in Christ. We're so thankful to be saved. We love you. We support your mission. Paul, go tell other cities about Jesus, and we're going to finance you to do it. We're going to give you gifts so you can do that. And that's what was happening here. And that's what Paul is uh, writing them to thank them for doing that. And actually, interestingly enough, in verse 6, where it says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great verse that assures us that God's going to finish what he started in our lives, right? It is that. But you know, it's not primarily that although it certainly is that. I've been comforted by that verse many times. I've comforted many people by that verse. But you know, the first context of the verse is the, the, one, the good work that God had begun in them that they were going to complete was the work of partnering with Paul in the gospel. And if you just read it in the context, that's exactly what it says. He says, I'm, I'm thanking God for you, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I know your commitment, and I know you're going to continue to assist me in the ministry of the gospel. And so as we minister, and this is, I want us to understand this, we are in this together. And you see, if, if, if it was just me saying, um, hey, I'm going to go do all of this stuff for the gospel. And you guys said, hey, that's great. Go do it. That wouldn't be good. No, we're doing this for the gospel. 
We're seeking to advance the gospel together. It's a joint effort. And each and every church, as we give, as we financially contribute, we, that's what we're doing. Now, a few weeks ago, we had our Mission Sunday. And you remember, we had plenty of missionaries that visited us. And you know, that's one of the ways that we partner in the advancement of the gospel. Because when you give to the ministry and that money is then put toward the work that these missionaries are doing and the gospel is advancing in their communities, we're doing exactly what Paul said the Philippians were doing and he was commending them for. So that's what the third point is, partnering together for the advancement of the gospel, that we are collectively doing this together. It's not my vision solely. It's not my thing. Oh, yeah, Pastor Brian does this. No, we do this together as the people of God. And so the fellowship of the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel. Now, in closing, let's come back to to gospel. The word, the Greek word is euangelion. And if you just listen to that, euangelion, you get, that's the word evangel, evangelism, evangelical. That, that is where we got those words, euangelion. It means the pronouncement of good news. But listen, this was not a Christian-only term. In fact... Everyone in that day and culture would be the, they, everyone then would be familiar with the term, but in a different context than we would know it in. They would be familiar in it with the term, say, for example, when Caesar, when Caesar would enter a city, his heralds or even Caesar himself would present the gospel of Rome. Here's the good news. That they had all now become the beneficiaries of Caesar's blessing. And so this would have literally happened in Philippi. When Philippi became a Roman colony, that was good news. When they came and they announced that Philippi was now, because of Caesar's victory, uh, their borders are now secured and they could go about their business uh, without fear. They are now Roman citizens. They're exempt from various taxes and things. And they are, never have to fear that they're going to be you know, falsely arrested or unjustly condemned because every Roman citizen was guaranteed to have a, um, a fair trial. And so this was the good news that would be announced. Jesus took the term. And it says in Mark's gospel that Jesus went forth preaching the gospel, the euangelion of the kingdom of God. So you see, that's the, that's the context of the word. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. Because of Jesus, our sins can be forgiven. So here, here's the benefits. Your sins can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to God and born again and given a new life, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now you have a place in the family of God. You're a member of the body of Christ. You've been given gifts from the Holy Spirit. You're called into the service of the Lord, the King of the universe. And finally, you will live and reign with Christ forever in his eternal kingdom. That's the euangelion. That's the great news. And so that's where everything starts. Everything starts there. I have to receive that good news. Now, let's just think for a moment. If we lived in the, let's just say we lived back in Philippi before the time of Augustus. And 
let's just say that, you know, things were difficult for us and it wasn't good. And, and then suddenly we get this herald coming and informing us that we're now, um, we've been adopted by Rome to become part of their city, to be an outpost of Rome. And we're going to get all the benefits of being Roman citizens. I mean, we just like, oh, that is amazing. That's fantastic. Well, Jesus is announcing to us that through faith in him, we receive all of these blessings and benefits. They become ours personally, yes, but collectively as well. And so the gospel is going out today. And the invitation is to come and be part of this wonderful thing that God has been doing and is doing and will continue to do right down to the very end. And so as we close today, maybe there's someone here that hasn't received the good news. And and you have to receive it. It's not good enough to just hear about it. You have to apply it. And that happens by receiving Christ. And if you've not done that, then today is the day to do that. And so one final thing. Um, Starting next week, we're going to be giving an invitation every Sunday for people to receive Christ, to come up to the front of the platform and to pray a prayer to receive Christ. When we remodeled the sanctuary, when we remodeled the church, that was one of the things that I really said, we're, you know, we're going to do that. We had a really awkward setup here before it made that difficult, but it wasn't just the remodel of the sanctuary, but I, I just thought that would be the time to do it because, um, although we do that occasionally from time to time, I want to do it consistently because I want people to know, I want you to know that on Sundays you can bring a friend. Maybe you've been talking to them about the Lord. Maybe, you know, they've decided that they're going to come to church with you. And and we're just going to believe that as the word goes forth, that God's going to touch hearts. And we're just going to give people an opportunity to respond uh, each week to that. Because I know for many, it's so important to have that that moment in time, that 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 reference point where I can say, you know, on that day, that was the day that I gave my life to Christ. So keep that in prayer, but we are going to move into that next week as we have our team getting all ready for that and all. Um, we're going to be doing that. But for those of you today, you don't have to wait till next week when we got our team together. We'll have a prayer team up front this morning. And if you have never receive the good news personally yourself, and you want that, you want to know your sins are forgiven, you want the power of sin over your life to be broken, you want to know that you're a child of God, you want to experience that new life, that new birth, then we have a team of people that will happily pray with you about that this morning. So at the end of the service, make your way forward. So Lord, we thank you for your Uh, gospel. And we thank you for the fellowship of the gospel. And we pray that as we look into what it means throughout the weeks and the months ahead, we pray that you would bless us on our journey through this uh, great letter to the Philippians. And Lord, I pray for anyone with us today that has uh, not yet fully embraced the uh, the good news. Help them to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.